Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast for and about marginalized groups. We're continuing our exploration of the band Manic Street Preachers in part two of this bonus mini-series entitled Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Adam Scott Glasspool, co-host of the podcast series What Is Music? I'll also be interviewing Leighton Evans, Senior Lecturer in Media Theory at Swansea University, and Emily Hyatt, a Manic Street Preachers superfan. Hello, I'd like to welcome you onto the podcast, onto Mouthor. Thanks for coming. So, a little brief intro from me. We've got Adam Scott Glasspool, who is the co-host of the What Is Music podcast, a music podcast focusing on musical artists' entire discographies, so a different artist every season. Season one focused on the body of work of Manic Street Preachers and was called Do You Love Us? And it critically analysed the cultural impact of Manic Street Preachers' body of work. They're currently on season two, which is called Are You Amused? And they are critically analysing the history and cultural impact of the music of the band Muse. And we've also got with us... They're better than me. That's because I was listening earlier today, so it's probably etched in my brain. <laughs> we've also got with us Leighton Evans, Senior Lecturer in Media Theory. Is that right? That's right, yeah. At Swansea University. My brother worked there in the IT department for many years. And also, as I mentioned earlier, the author of the article Thus Sang Manic Street Preachers, which was featured in Philosophy Now magazine. Is that right? It was, yeah, many years ago, but yeah. <laughs> Still some very interesting and valid points that you make in that essay, but we'll get to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So that's a little brief intro from me, but how would you describe yourselves in a nutshell? Leighton, if you'd like to go first, could be just kind of what you're about, what you do, or just, <laughs> or just what makes you tick. Um, okay. Oh, wow. Don't put me on the spot, like. Um, okay. So, um, I guess in the context of this, I'm a big Manix fan and have been really since the early 90s. I think the first song I heard by the Manix, I was, what, 12 years old. I was, um, we, uh, it was Slash and Burn in the summer of 1992. Um, so went out and bought Generation Terrorists a couple of days later and, We've been listening ever since, so that's 28 years, right? <laughs> um, you mentioned the article I wrote. I'll be honest, um, that article was thrown together in a day when I was working as a FE lecturer just outside Bristol. <laughs> and um, it, it, it was sort of end of term, and I didn't have much anything better to do. So I decided to sit down and write something while I was doing my master's in philosophy at the time, when I was actually um, writing... I think like a seven, eight thousand word essay on Nietzsche at the time. And at that point, when I was deeply buried in Nietzsche like that, I kept on seeing Nietzsche popping up everywhere, especially in what I was listening to on my iPod. And most of that was the Manix. So I sat down and wrote a very, what I thought was quick article on it. It was the first thing I've ever had published, although chronologically it wasn't because for some reason philosophy now kept that for three years. And it didn't get published till 2010. It was actually written in 2007. So it's 13 oh. years old. Um, and yeah, it, I think it's the only thing I've, 
I, funny enough, I mentioned the Mechanic Street Preachers in a lot of my publications. I must have published 40, 50 things over the years, and uh, they do pop up every now and again. But um, it's the only specific thing I've written on the Mechanics. It's on, and, um, you know, there is a vast literature on the Mechanics out there as well. I'm quite happy that I've only got one tiny little dot on the big <laughs> ball of literature out there. But it's, it's nice. It's, it's nice to have something out there, yeah. Excellent. And what about yourself, Adam? Um, nothing nearly as, as impressive as any of that. I just sort of chat with my mates about Manitary Preachers and we record it. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose by day I am like I'm I'm a a team leader at a small bespoke care company. So I'm I'm a sport worker who um looks after vulnerable adults. And then by night I'm um, yeah, I, I do a podcast. So we actually had a little bit of, of a rebrand. We used to be called Do You Love Us? Um, and it was a podcast entirely devoted to Manic Street Preachers. Uh, but we ran out of Manic Street Preachers to cover. We did their whole discography. So we are we now rebranded and we are now called What Is Music? Uh, a music podcast about music. Uh, and we're going through the discography of Muse. Um, we've just done Absolution. They're one of our other hosts' favourite bands. So like a little bit of a role reversal there. Yeah, it was nice revisiting those albums with you in season one. I would probably say myself with Manic Street Preachers. They've always been a constant. I'm a Valley's girl from a crummy little town called Crumlin, which is about five miles up the road from Blackwood. I actually went to the same secondary school as the Manics, Oakdale Comprehensive. It was about six or five years after they'd left, mind, but... uh, Right. (laughs) You know... Until I found out about Manic Street Preachers, and again, that would have been about 91, 92. I was reading Smash Hits magazine as a 12-year-old. And then there were these glamorous kind of sort of punks, but really glam rock, metal. It was just mad, mad lads from the valleys. And my music teacher spoke about them with pride. (laughs) And so I tracked down some of their music And it just made me chuckle that there were these naughty punks swearing and slagging off where they're from. And I thought, wow, these guys are in the top 30 or top 40 when I discovered them. And to me, that was like making it. (laughs) I thought if they can do it, there's hope for me (laughs) in this crummy little village, (laughs) X mining town. That's where my obsession started. So you guys have been there since like, the beginning like 91 92 i only got into them in like it must have been 2003 sort of just after forever delayed had come out and i sort of heard them on a compilation mini disc that my dad made <laughs> mini discs, i remember them and yeah i just heard i heard if you tolerate this that's probably the first thing i heard by them uh that, that i was like conscious of when i went back i recognized things like motorcycle emptiness and things like that yeah i think for me it was you love us actually oh that's a cool way to start yeah i went out and bought a bootleg it was at a record fair that used to come to blackwood miners institute like once a year and i'd gone in there and i found i rushed in and i had like two pound pocket money and I found this bootleg cassette of one of their Japan live shows, I think it was. And actually, it was 
you know, so easy. The Guns N' Roses cover, the version that's on Forever Delayed. Oh, no, not Forever Delayed. Sorry. Um, Lipstick Traces. That version was on there. So it was that gig. And You Love Us was the first track. It was the first one I heard. And ah, they were right. Wow. I do love them. And it was kind of instant for me. I've just seen that Emily's back in the room. So I'll just pause a second. And oh, here you are. Hi. I'm sorry. No worries. Oh, cranky. I'm really, I'm sorry. I just, it just went down. It's working now. It's fine. So, Emily, we, we were just doing introductions. I suppose we were just describing ourselves in a nutshell, really. So, actually, I suppose I should in- introduce you to the podcast. This is Emily Hyatt, a Manic Street Preachers superfan, would you say? Or more James Dean Bradfield superfan? <laughs> And... Oh, a bit of both, really. Um, James Dean Bradfield is my... I'm autistic, and James is my special interest, I would say. He's a pretty good special interest to have, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, he's... Um, it, you know, the Manics are my favourite band anyway, so I'm pretty obsessed with them too. Okay, and I discovered you... You featured on the What Is Music podcast back on season one, Do You Love Us, about the Manic Street Preachers. You were just talking about devotion and the nature of fandom and obsession and that kind of thing. And you mentioned the secret seven-inch artwork that you did for the Manix track. How would you describe yourself? I mean, that's what I know about you. But how would you describe yourself in a nutshell? It could be to do with the Manix or yourself as a person. Cats, the Manix, cups of tea... <laughs> that does sound like a good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it, really. It's not at all. Um, sorry, I'm a bit blind. I'm just a bit thrown off by all of the kerfuffle earlier. That's all right. Right. So I was actually about to move on to, in general, musical interests, just to kind of get an idea of the sort of things that you like and that makes you tick. So other than the Manic Street Preachers, could you name maybe two or two or three musical influences that perhaps reach that same level of fandom and obsession for you? Or maybe they're not. You, You like them, but they don't quite reach that. So for me, it would be like Tori Amos and Paul McCartney, the Beatles. They're probably up there with the Manics for me. But the Manics just trump them. Manics have been a constant for me. And I got into Tori Amos and Paul McCartney's solo career a little bit later on. So what about you guys? Adam? Yeah, um, that's such a, a difficult and dense sort of sort of question. Um, I kind of have that personality where I will get... a obsessed with with anything new that i find i think i'll want to like explore the the inside out of it um rem are the absolute sort of top they're my favorite band um and then probably radiohead and then and uh that that sort of third spot like it just it sort of rotates there's lot there's lots of different artists that are always in that position i guess i guess i'd go nick cave in the bad seats or nick cave in general Nice. Yeah, very good. Or the National. I, 
That's cheating. <laughs> I'm going to cheat. I'm going to cheat. There you go. There's four. <laughs> All right. So what about you, Emily? Um, it's Mannix as number one. Um, Radiohead are my number two. Um, they were my number one. I'm very obsessed with Radiohead, but I was... It, it, they were my special interest. It's flipped. Right. So Mannix, Radiohead. Then I've got Super Fairy Animals, News... I really like REM as well. Garbage therapy. But it's mainly Radiohead and the Mannix. Okay. And Leighton, what about yourself? Glad you gave me a chance to think. <laughs> so, yeah, um, my thinking bands would be slightly, would be kind of up there with them. Haskadoo would be one. Probably um, Soundgarden would be another. Sort of obsessive one. Super Chunk would be another one. Talking Heads, maybe. Oh, yeah. Talking Heads. It all be sort of rattling around, but yeah, I'd say the Manics would be comfortably number one in mine. Can I have Talking Heads as well? There you go, that's five. Ah, that's definitely <laughs> cheating now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Emily, we've all just been talking about our history with the Manics when we first discovered them or got into them or the first song we heard. What about you? Can you remember what album it was or what song it was or, or what the thing was that made them tick for you? And what was your response to that song or album? There was actually an enemy or an enemy article. Uh, I bought the enemy because uh, I was into Radiohead and there was a Mannix article. It was a reprint of a classic and I read it and I was like, oh, what these people are, oh my goodness. And it was pictures of Nikki and Richie looking very glamorous and very beautiful. And it was like, wow, I need to hear something by these guys. So I, I took myself off to HMV and I bought Sheer Suffering. And wow. I loved it. And the Holy Bible followed. And uh, then God Against the Soul singles followed, but not the album. Then I got GTP. And then uh, by that time, it was time for um, Everything Must Go, Designed for Life to come out. And what about, I mean, was it a positive response for every album instantly? Or were there some that you kind of went, yeah, I've listened to that, but that's going to go away now. I'm not going to dust that off for a while. Did you mean when I started off? Yeah, yeah. You know, I suppose sometimes when you listen in retrospectively, you can sort of almost like binge the earlier albums particularly if you got in them doing the uh, Holy Bible phase. So you're binging them in like a short space of time. And I don't know, maybe they don't impact you in the same way. I mean, I remember, but luckily for me, the first album I heard was Generation Terrorists. And I think they were, yeah, they were just about to release Gold Against the Soul. So I kind of followed them in a chronological order. You know, I was always waiting with bated breath for the next album to come out. And I wonder what it would have been like doing that in reverse, really. Would it have had the same impact if I had, say, gotten into them during the lifeblood period and then binged everything before that? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, for me, the Holy Bible was instantaneous. It was what... Um, I have to swear on this. Yeah. I messed up. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, 13-year-old... Um, with no friends who didn't know what was going on needed, uh, because which got it, you know. 
Yeah. There's more nuance to that now as I'm older, but initially as a teenager, the Holy Bible was incredible for me. Uh, but like you said, I went backwards and I went to the Gold Against the Singles, Gold Against the Soul Singles first because I picked them all up at a car boot. Um, on vinyl so that was cheap and then I went to GT um, as a result The Holy Bible still is usually my favourite album Gats I to be honest I didn't really get at the time at all and I've now with the re-release had a great greatly appreciated it yeah. I really like it now uh, and GT um, it, it's a bit heresy in manic circles but really not my favourite it's um <laughs> vaguely low down in my over you know overall yeah. but mine too emily mine too but i feel like if it'd been like yourself i, I may you know if i heard that first maybe yeah. it'd have that love and that power there perhaps uh what about you leighton uh order in yeah i don't know it's 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 a weird one with me because um i'll change with mood very often with these things um so, I think I agree with Emily's sort of um, Holy Bible is stands above not just <laughs> the rest of the Manix, but pretty much everything that was released in the 1990s as well. Yeah, definitely. And then, I, really, I'm kind of a mood listener apart from that. And, you know, I, I will churn through lots of different albums. It's probably easier for me to say, you know, which ones don't go on my repeat list. I never really took to Lifeblood. Really? I actually know Resistance is Futile I've listened to perhaps once. Mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe not more than that. Um, and for some reason, I don't get on with postcards from a young man, although me I quite too, like some actually. of the, you know, some of the actual individual tracks off it. And the rest of them kind of go around and around as, uh, as life swirls by me and, you know, and I'll get into one for a few months and carry on listening. So Manics have got a longevity like that with me where, you know, Things that I've heard 20 odd years ago, I will still play a lot uh, in a short period of time when I get back into them. There's not many bands I could even remotely say that about. Like, you know, so um, they're important to me in that sense. But yeah, I guess it's Holy Bible and then a whole bunch of others. <laughs> and um, Adam, you've said you got into them. I can't remember the song you said you heard first now. Uh, I I heard if you tolerate this first, but I got I got into them like at the perfect time because they just released the greatest hits. Like if they just released Forever Delayed, like that's such a good time to get into a band because you have they've already sort of cherry picked the their sort of standout songs for you. Um, True. And then I, and then yeah, I just started working my way back. Like I think I started with Everything Must Go, um, and. And the Holy Bible, I think, two two very like contrasting records. I didn't get this is my truth. Tell me yours. I was very fond of Gold Against the Soul, uh, less like like more so than I am now. I think. Um, yeah, I, I had that whole like, I got to I got to like inhale them all at once, you know, uh, which is quite nice. You get like a nice. Uh, the full range of the band at that point. And then the first album that came out while I was a fan was, um, was Lifeblood. It's nice. It, you know, it's a little bit like binge watching a Netflix series, I suppose. And if you like the series, then that's a great way to do it. But, but on, but on shuffle, like (laughs) (laughs) you you watch like series three, then you watch series one and then do. Yeah, just in a random order. (laughs) So just to give a bit of, 
background about the Mouth Off podcast. So I run a company called Forget Me Not Productions and we are an inclusive arts organisation, so largely working with marginalised groups. So that can include people with complex disabilities, the LGBTQ plus community, working class communities, Romani gypsy groups, people with mental health issues, black minority ethnic groups. I mean, where do you stop? The list goes on, really. Would you describe, I mean, for me, I wanted to do something Manic Street Preachers related because I'm a fan and this was a natural progression. But I suppose I think of them as the ultimate band for marginalised causes, marginalised issues. Would you guys describe them in that in that way? Are they a band that can reach out and speak to marginalised groups? Leighton, do you want to take this one first? Um, I, yes, I guess. Um, as, as much as any sort of um, group of white musicians white male musicians can, I suppose, you know, you've got to take that into account as well. But yeah, yeah, definitely. There's been consistently in the Manics music, a commitment to exploring, you know, so uh, issues of, you know, social justice, issues regarding um, politics and class in particular, which, you know, marks them down as a band, not necessarily, you know, at times, you know, who have veered, you know, into sort of, um, heavily left-wing politics as well, but with a sense of inclusivity within that, I guess, which is important. You know, there are other musicians available, is what I would say also. But, mm. yeah, I, I, I think it resonates um, quite heavily for me in particular, given that, you know, like yourself, Clary, I'm from a, you know, a mining village. My father was a coal miner. And to hear people from the same, in you know, a similar kind of environment, a similar kind of background, being engaged in these topics... And discussing them with an empathy and um, a political sensitivity that was important in terms of understanding these issues for me, I think, yeah, and hence, you know, I, I feel that they do have important contributions to make for that. And they were a good access point for me as a teenager into sort of wider kind of political discourses that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. So, yeah, I, in that sense, yeah, they are a very important band. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if... I would say they're the most important band, but, you know, they're certainly important in terms of my personal context, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. Emily, what do you feel about that? I thought that was a great answer. Um, I mean, I've sort of um, said yes in many ways, but also no in a few ways. Um, it's like Leighton said, um, at, the, at the end of the day, it's for white cis guys. And, True. But they do very well with sort of what they've started with uh, and like Leighton said they're a good gateway to other political mindsets that you may not have considered um, I mean I, I grew up quite multicultural um, in quite a multicultural area so I was sort of already exposed to you know different political ideologies when I came across the Manics but they certainly helped cement um, that, that those were the politics I wanted almost um, just because they were delivering them so well in their songs and their speech. Um, I think, especially for me, um, just bring them as a teenager, um, and my personal, um, how I felt personally marginalized as a 13 year old who couldn't, you know, process 
anything or, or d- deal with people. Uh, Richie's lyrics particularly spoke a lot to me. He, you know, there was this sense that he was very marginalised and if no religion that he was. But, you know, you, you, you grab onto what you, you can see and what's useful to you uh, in that sort of um, lyric, in the lyrics. Um, yeah, I mean, I've generally, yeah, generally, yes. But like Leighton also said, they're not the most important band politically. Yeah. At the moment. Perhaps they were. Um, well, they probably weren't way back when, but they they were very important politically, but not so much now, I suppose. And I don't feel they speak for me as much as they once did, perhaps. Now I've aged and my politics have further evolved. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's also instances where they've, perhaps they've been very well intentioned, but maybe it's come across a bit slightly cat-handed within the lyrics. But we'll get to that. So Adam, what about you? Do you think or feel that they are a band that tackle marginalised issues and reach marginalised groups? Um... I I think that they, uh, I think that they do, but I don't think that that is something that they kind of set out to do. I I think that they didn't start with that sort of raison d'être as as sort of we want to reach marginalised groups because I think that their mo was we want to reach everybody. That sort of mass communication. We want to be the biggest band in the world. And I, but I think what they also did, especially in the early days, is take great pains to almost make themselves their own sort of community. It was very, it was very them against the world. And I don't think like, like early Manic Street Preachers, I don't think you could ever sort of accuse them of being inclusive in any way, because they were so sort of like tied up into their own like belief systems and it was very much a like, this is what we think. Uh, fuck you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you could really, I suppose, sense that they were disillusioned where they were from and that they were trying to sort of stand apart from it. And I feel that they've embraced their working class roots and their Welshness more now. <laughs> the Welsh flag certainly didn't come out in older generation terrorist gigs. I'm pretty positive of that. That's something that they've embraced as they become middle-aged men with family, you know, and James moved back to Wales from London. <laughs> it's a bit like me. I travelled the world. I couldn't wait to leave Wales. I moved to Hertfordshire first to study. Not that that was much better. I studied, I travelled around a bit. And then I went travelling across the world and I was really happy to come back to Wales, you know, and settle here. And I feel like that was their journey to a degree. I think that they do have a lot to say about like things like mental health and body dysmorphia and eating disorders. But I think that a lot of that is part of it's by design. Part of it is also, is also by accident. I mean, their their primary lyric writer was somebody who was personally going through a lot of those things so it was kind of always going to be a big part of what he wrote about but I'm not sure if they kind of I guess the answer is yes but maybe they never intended to kind of reach out to those sort of marginalized issues marginalized groups you know yeah well that leads me on nicely to my next point 
Yeah, so I guess I'm thinking about early manics with their very clear manifestos. As you said, us against the world philosophies. And I suppose they started with a manifesto that they, some of it may have come across as shouted angry slogans within their lyrics. Maybe not that well thought out. Emily, you've said yourself that as you've aged, maybe some of those ideologies or or their politics haven't aged that well with you. Do you think they've stayed true to their vision when they formed that manifesto in 1986 or whenever it was, 87? Are they still those boys or now men on that mission or are they just kind of blowing in the wind? The thing is, I always found the mission a little ambiguous. I could never actually exactly pin down what they were doing. I'm, I don't know if I stand alone in this, but no, absolutely not. Right? Yeah. Thank you. I, I you know, I, I, I just, I, I could never actually pin down what they wanted, and I just sort of saw a general direction. Um, never an actual A B C D E. Maybe that's my autism and my love of lists, but um, you know. If you would take their manifesto to be um, social left leanings, yes, they're mostly still doing that. If it's some form of activism, then some of them are doing that, some yeah. of them aren't. You know, if it's anger at the establishment, there's not a lot of that these days, unless you're on Sean's Facebook feed. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, I don't sort of see that as much but they i've aged and they've aged you know um although you know they still get a lot of young fans which is amazing i love that i'm still excited by them you know really excited by them and their politics i think i've gone off tangent with the question (laughs) (laughs) i think those richie lyrics are really potent though which is why they attract like young fans we were recording episode where we were talking to simon price and he basically was saying like there's always going to be 13-year-old goths who like are attracted to Richie's lyrics because they do speak to kind of people who feel out of place in society. Yeah, you know, and they can be very blunt and to the point, whereas Nicky's writing style can be very different. Not that he hasn't approached certain subjects in similar ways, but for the most part, in many ways, they're... Is it to digest and reflect upon and maybe easier for a new fan, like someone like my mother, for instance, uh, to get into? They're a bit more vague, a bit more universal, whereas a song like If White America, you know, it's kind of no getting away from what a song like that is about. Yeah, the, the message has definitely changed over time. The delivery of the message has changed over time. But that happens, you know, as you pin it down to, you know, there's a maturity in the musicians. There's a different songwriting dynamic. There's a different music musical dynamic about the group. And, and that's changed all the way across um, them being together as a group. Um, is the manifesto any different now? I would say yes, it is, and it inevitably is so. And that's not just a reflection of any changes in the group politically. That's, you know, <laughs> this country is radically different to what it was in 1987. Mm. You know, and we're not going back to 1987 either. And politics in this country is radically different. And the social stratification of this country has changed and social conditions have changed. 
And the band changes in reflection to that, you know. Um, what they what they discuss in the lyrics has changed over time as a reflection of that as well. So in in terms of it depends what you think the manifesto is, I think. In, if you think of it in more nebulous terms as this is a band that is out there to express ideas, uh, to express a different form, if you like, of working class consciousness over time, which they both embraced and turned away from at different times in, their, in the time that they've been together, then there's a unifying thread about what, if you think of it in those terms, there is a unifying thread about what they do. And I don't think that that overall overarching idea changes over the time too much. Okay. So I've already mentioned about, well, briefly, about well intentions that have maybe been handled a little bit cack-handedly by the Manics. What appeals to me about them is they are a provocative band and they're not afraid of tackling taboo subjects. I mean, maybe more so in the early days, although I think some of the later albums have done so and and done so very successfully. But sometimes, possibly, it's been a bit of a, how shall I say, a well-intentioned failing. I've been looking at a lot of the online Manics forums, Forever Delayed, that sort of thing. And I did pose this question to them. I was looking at the song Little Baby Nothing. So just to put it out there... Little Baby Nothing is one of my favourite songs off Generation Terrorist. And I've always thought of it as a fantastic feminist anthem. And I think as a woman, I'm allowed to say, yeah, these four white males who were in their early 20s at the time, well, not only did they tackle the taboo topic, but I think, so, I think they did so very well. But I did put this question on one of the Manic Street Preachers forums. I think it was on Forever Delayed, maybe on a few of them, actually. And the question was, how successful was that or any other feminist anthem or songs that have attempted to discuss gender issues? So I've got some comments here. This is from Brian Mackey. He thinks that Little Baby Nothing is a naive, young Mannix lyric. He thinks it hasn't aged well. It's very cringeworthy to listen to now. He says mainly it's because it's written by a man, Richie. And it's based on what he calls a preconceived idea about a specific woman, Tracy Lords, and how her life must be. I disagree with that because it wasn't even atten- intended for Tracy Lords. And I don't think the song was intended as a critique on, you know, women working in the porn industry. Mm. It, was, it was for Kylie, right? They wanted Kylie. Yeah, exactly. Which gives it a completely different vibe Completely it also it. wasn't a full richie lyric i believe it was in yeah i think yeah it was pretty much a, a 50 50 co-lyric wasn't it he said harmless intentions but a super cack-handed attempt at being right on and apparently he's read that tracy lords hates the song now i'm pretty sure i've seen in an interview that she speaks very highly of the song yeah and of her encounter with Manic Street Preachers. <laughs> so. You know, someone I know has recently met her and got her to sign Little Baby Nothing. And she was like, wow, nostalgia. <laughs> I'll just read a few more. I mean, some of them are positive, but a lot of them do take that stance. So this is Heidi Vinicum, And she says, I second that, that Little Baby Nothing is not great. 
although she does recognise that it was made with good intentions. Craig James thinks that it's one of the best songs ever written. He was all for it, but he does say, but then again, I'm a bloke, so what do I know? <laughs> Which I disagree with. I think you can be a bloke and have an opinion on, on, the, on that song and on that subject matter. Catherine Westonby, I think their interrogation of traditional white masculinity rather than trying to speak from a feminine perspective is their most important approach. They've done multiple albums with multiple songs that attempt this and she thinks that sharp self-reflexivity is priceless. So, you know, it's not all negative. A few of them, again, saying about it being a bit cack-handed. Victoria Williams-Chawinski says she loves it and she thinks it's a great feminist song. I mean, there's loads on there that... <laughs> Gosh, there's an awful one here. A scathing review. I don't find Little Baby Nothing to be feminist at all. This is by Alan Keith. It's very much anti-sex work while espousing this patronising idea from a man's perspective. It's a perspective of a woman worker being a sex worker, being exploited and enslaved. He says, I'm, aw I'm aware that Tracy Lords was an underage girl when she performed in these adult films, but as far as I'm aware, the song wasn't written with her in mind. He thinks feminism in today's sort of society, that it's by and large pro-sex work, but I'm not sure I agree with that completely, in that it allows people to have the opportunities to use their bodies as they see fit, and if it's consensual for all involved, you know, then it's fine. <laughs> Again, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. <laughs> um, he doesn't think Little Baby Nothing has aged particularly well because of the reasons listed above. But he does describe it as a banging tune. A banging tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll just read one more here. This is Hannah Stewart. She says, Little Baby Nothing is a feminist song, in inverted commas, but you can totally tell that it's written by four sheltered white men. And let me clarify, I hate the song for this, for this reason. And then she says on a slightly unrelated topic, Richie Edwards had a deeply problematic view of women in general. It's hard to look at anything from his time in the band and view it as some huge feminist statement. And this is why it taints her view. She goes on to say, I know it's the parting line to state that simply Richie was a genius in all things, but she believes that he was a raging misogynist and she wants this to be addressed more openly and honestly when addressing the band's history because she feels like it's always swept under the rug. So again, a pretty harsh review. Hmm. I suppose my reaction to that is, is that it is it is not just a Richie lyric. It's it's a it's a co-lyric with with Nikki, who goes on to later on in their career write possibly one of the the more sensitive uh, songs by a rock band about uh, gender identity in Born a Girl. Yeah, I, I'm 
I'm returning to this theme, right? But um, Little Baby Nothing comes out in 1991, where gender relations are completely different, where actually the very concept of feminism is a completely different thing to what it is today. We're in a different, we're in a totally different wave of feminism. And to analyze that song through the lens of feminism as it exists today actually brings up dichotomies, which those responses do. Now, that comment about sort of contemporary feminism being pro-sex work is, is absolutely insane. <laughs> However, there, is, there are strands of contemporary feminism which do take a positive um, view of sex work. It is no, by no means the majority of people involved in feminist thought or indeed feminists today who take that position, but some do. And it's an argument which has been worked out over time. It's an argument that didn't really exist in 1991. You know, it's a position in feminism that didn't largely exist in 1991. And the song Little Baby Nothing, just to address that point about Richie being a raging misogynist, right? That, that for me, misconstrues. I know I'm a man defending a man here, right? Mm. But for me, that misconstrues some of the positioning and subjectivity that goes on in his songs. The songs are misogynistic in terms of what they are describing. But the position of both the songwriter and the subject position we're asked to take in the songs is very often that of the victim. It is an attempt at some kind of empathy within the songs rather than an attempt to, you know, if Richie was writing, you know, lyrics saying, you know, it, it's fine to be an exploited sex worker, you know, if you don't have to just look at Little Baby Nothing, you can perhaps look at Yes off the Holy, Holy Bible, which is an even better example of this. That would be different, but he's he's not asking us to take a subject position of an abuser. He's asking us to try and understand the context by which sex workers are abused by both capitalism and by society at large within the context of these songs. He's asking us to think about them rather than to challenge us to you know you know it's, it's almost like it's like a misreading of Polly by Nirvana. Like, you, you know, you read, you know, you're listening to it as if you want to beat up women. <laughs> you know, it's cut, you know, that wasn't Cobain's intention at all when he was writing the song. And I don't think in terms of intentionality, what they were trying to achieve in those songs is very different. But to analyze them through the lens of contemporary culture today is always problematic. I mean, my favorite comedian of all, of all time is Bill Hicks. And, um, Bill Hicks just, would not make it today. Hmm. You know, you listen to his material now and you think, no, you couldn't say that today. It would not work. You, you cannot get, you couldn't do that kind of thing because it's the context in which those songs were both written and performed and intended for a particular audience at that time, which is so important. I think those kind of criticisms, I don't want to label these people on Facebook, you know, sort of naive millennials or anything like that because it could be my age, it could be older. But it reads to me as if we're missing some of the wider in, you know, implications of, of why they were engaged in those topics at those times. And there you can see the change over time with how the Manics deal with issues like gender relations in society and so on. As these things change historically, we see a reflection and we see a change in how, you know, we, we say Nikki deals with it in a different way to Richie. Well, actually, Nikki be dealing in a different way to Nikki as well. Mm. Over time, you know, and, mm. and uh, that dynamic is very important across, you know, any uh, artist with the longevity of the Manic Street Preachers to trace that kind of change is really important because it gives you an understanding of how they understand the world around them just as much as how, you know, they're being received. 
I also think that the uh, 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 some of what we've just heard, like in the in the comments, comes from just a basic misread of the lyrics, where in in, in the same way that people, you know, um, certain sections of the fan base would would misread uh, a design for life you know we, we don't talk about love we just want to get drunk like completely missing the irony of that statement um completely forgetting about the context i've never like i've never considered little baby nothing as anything other than an anti-abuse song do you know what i mean like there's no way that richie is advocating for that kind of of treatment of women i don't think um and I, th- I think that that's also something. I think he also, in his lyric writing, and he does it a few times on the Holy Bible, he just likes to present ideas and then let the listener sort of suss it out for themselves. And I think those can be misinterpreted as well-intentioned failings. Um, the the first one that comes to mind is Archives of Pain, which seems to be pro capital punishment, um, or, or or PCP, which is anti. Um, uh, like anti-political correctness on the face of it but actually i think what he's doing is uh, as a lyric writer he's throwing up ideas to explore rather than saying this is how i think people should feel about something you know and he's a master of that which is why well one of the things i most respect about richie's lyrics it does get you thinking about which side of the coin do i fall on and it does get you considering all of the perspectives just say but basically i agree with the way the song's framed and it's it's point in time um i also agree with how it's written from the point of view of victim and that richie often placed himself in the point of view of victim you know throughout his writing career he has done that as has nikki fab but i do think we do need to acknowledge richie did have a problematic relationship with lots of women Uh, and that possibly is where some of this has come from you know he has got quite a problematic background you know for someone who is quite a good feminist he's often hasn't been in his personal life taking it as lyrics alone great but shaping it with comments like his Lolita complex um, the fact that he has used prostitutes himself um, you know I'm not completely getting rid of all the good he's done here I'm just saying it needs acknowledging in in the con you know in the context of that song that actually it's, he is problematic yeah I, I suppose it comes down to how much you can separate the art from the artist isn't it definitely I'm not you know I'm not completely decrying him or anything like that uh, but especially in fandom that there is a tendency I'm not saying you guys are doing it because you're totally not you've been critical there is you know a tendency to go towards St. Rich Mm. and I just Mm. perhaps some of these criticisms particularly from the women are perhaps coming from the point of view of what they've read and known about him although I don't want to put the words in him yeah I mean when I researched this particular point I looked over some old Richie interviews and articles that I found online, many of which, I mean, you only got a, a minute or two in the video clip snippets here and there, but he's quite open about, you know, like the sleeping with the prostitutes and the groupies. So it's not like these things have been written after his disappearance. He's been very open about sleeping with a different groupie every night and hiring you know, prostitutes. And I think there's an element of self-disgust there, and I almost feel that 
feeds into it. Like him and Nikki are writing from this female perspective, but also as the perpetrators of this exploitation at points themselves, I think it gives the song and the message a little bit more fuel. And yeah, I suppose I'm the same as you guys, really. I've always seen that as a good attempt and a good example of them trying to t- to tackle an issue like that and to take on a different perspective. It is also just like, you know, a hot banger. It's like, it's, yeah. it's just <laughs> it's a really great, great song. song. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and also if it was horrendously problematic, I don't think a fantastic, incredible feminist like the anchoress would uh, get on stage and belt it out with them. Exactly, you know, and I'm a big Kylie Minogue fan. And I know she sang it with them, I think in about 97, back when they were collaborating on the Impossible Princess songs. I think, yeah, there's a YouTube clip floating around of her singing with them at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. And she's got this like short sort of cropped hair in the indie phase. And yeah, she speaks very fondly of them and that song. And I think she's said since... You know, I think I read it in the Simon Price interview, actually, that that she'd love to sing it with them again and work with them again. That speaks volumes to me. If if Kylie says it's okay, then it must be okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So are there any other examples? I mean, we might be able to go on and on and on. But for you personally, can you think of times that they've attempted something and maybe it's not quite come off as it's intended as they'd intended s-y-m-m for me (laughs) because i just i think that's just a a failure of of a lyric really it feels like a cop-out to me the the idea of kind of taking this very very interesting but also very tragic um very tragic story and then writing a song about writing a song about it (laughs) and in that song saying that you haven't really thought about how you're going to write this song. You know, that that feels like a bit of a, a cop-out. It's not really a song. It's it's halfway to a song. He needs to finish writing that song, maybe. Yeah, sort it out, Nicky. Don't be lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I love the tone of it. I think it's really interesting, like, musically. I just, I think that is a, that's one of Nicky's clangers, lyric-wise, for me. I suppose he did try and make up for that with Liverpool Revisited, whether that was a success, that I don't know. For me, that's just as ham-fisted for me. Oh, it's ham-fisted, but it's wonderful. I love that song. Yeah, I suppose that they're in their sort of very, like, you know, that that album to me is a very sentimental album. They're, they're being very outwardly sentimental in a way that the Manitary Preachers aren't a lot of the time. And that personally makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Leighton? I'd echo that. I think S4MM is um, not a great song, uh, really. But um, I think the one thing that sticks out for me are things that they tried and didn't come off and which they've distanced themselves from the past with is sort of uh, the entire um, background to the album Know Your Enemy, um, which is kind of motivated by this sort of nebulous embrace of uh, Cuba and Cuban politics in some way. And of course, you know, they went and played in Cuba and I'm sure we've seen the clips and playing in Cuba and so on. And kind of admit on later songs that, you know, 
kind of singing about an ideology and a kind of a political system that they never really believed in, which is interesting at the time. Now, I was a big fan of the album at the time, and it resonated a lot personally with me at the time because things that were happening in my life. And I listened to death to the um, Know Your Enemy. I know a lot of Manics fans at the time didn't like it at all. And, uh, you know, it had a difficult sort of um, impact. But the sort of the, that sort of embrace of, let's be fair, you know, communitarian politics on that album in 2001 was two fingers up to the United States because mm. the two albums which broke big in Europe and the UK didn't make it over there. And so, the, <laughs> you know, it was kind of a typical Nicky move to say, right, I'm going to wrap myself in the Cuban flag <laughs> for the next album to say, screw you to America. But it was also really, really problematic for them in the future, I think. But, you know, they, they kind of just wound away from it. You never saw a repeat of that kind of political stance again in any of their work. Which I, so I put that down as a definite sort of, they went somewhere and didn't go there again. There's, there was also sort of like a bit half-hearted we had um we had Stephen Lee Nash on our podcast and he wrote a book called Riffs and Meaning which is a book about Know Your Enemy um and uh he, he made the very the very uh salient point that they made the big deal of sort of like this anti-capitalist political stance and went to play in Cuba and then sold the DVD of it <laughs> So, so it was just <laughs> it was just a big sort of capitalist uh, event, anyway. Us were selling, you know, big t-shirts with the Cuban flag on them for like, yeah. you know, yeah. like you know, and you go, okay, hmm, right. <laughs> yeah, I think for me that is a bone of contention as well. But then you know, they're nothing if not a band full of hypocrisy. Oh, I love how confusing they are. Like, I actually, I never know what side of the argument they're going to be on. It's it's exhilarating. <laughs> so, thinking about, well, we've talked a lot about your initial responses to them, and there may be songs or albums that have resonated with you. What do you think they represent to you now at this point in time? I'm guessing they still have meaning to you because you've agreed to come on here and chat to me about them but what do they actually mean to you are they still relevant or are you thinking kind of with resistance is futile you're sort of thinking oh come on lads but then of course you know we've got that corker that james dean bradfield released last summer even in exile which patrick jones is coming on to chat about soon if that was a manix album I think that would be up there for me. I've, I've listened to it on repeat recently. And maybe maybe it's new songs, something a bit different that's got me excited. But I think it would definitely be up there with my favourite, <laughs> one of my favourites so far. Um, I think I think there's definitely something very special about um, um, Even in Exile. Just, just the idea of, you know, a top 10 album about, the life and death of, of Victor Hara is is very exciting. I think that's something that the Manic Street Preachers are always going to offer. Whether that's relevant to general music fans, maybe not. You know, I, a, a big a big part of our podcast is sort of analysing these lyrics and then realising that maybe 80% of the people that listen to them aren't having that meaning sort of filter through to them and are, at the end of the day, listening to very effective, very well-produced pop songs. So 
are they still relevant? They're still relevant to me. Uh, part of the reason for doing the podcast, going through the, their entire discography, was that I had fallen out of love with them a little bit, sort of between Futurology and Resistance is Futile. Resistance is Futile is the first tour in years that I didn't didn't go see them on. I, and I kind of felt that they had become a bit of a legacy act, um, especially when they started then touring the Holy Bible in full, then everything must go in full, then this is my truth in full, and then re-releasing Send Away the Tigers after 10 years. Um, I, I, I started to feel as though they had sort of begun to trade on past glories. Going through the albums now, there's so much interesting, relevant, cool stuff going on across their whole discography. For me, it's just a case of, is that getting through to sort of the general listener? Did it ever? Yeah, it did. Oh, yeah. We kind of forget that between 96 to the early 2000s, they were a major band in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, very high signing band. Singles doing extremely well in the charts. But that will be a lot of people's impression of the Manning Street Preachers will be framed in that period as well. I think there's sort of massive relevance to me simply because, uh, you know, they're a Welsh band. <laughs> and that's meaningful to me in, in many ways, you know. Yeah. Um, I can't hide it, you know, my accent is a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? And, <laughs> um, you know, and the way I sing it after every sentence is an even bigger giveaway than I'm from Swansea and not another place in Wales. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, two members of the band went to Swansea University. You know, I went to Swansea University. I, I work at Swansea University, you know. I, I I teach political theory at Swansea University, you know, which is what the guys study. You know, they have huge personal relevance to me as somebody who identifies very strongly with them. And, you know, the music and their back catalogue over time, I think Adam makes a very, very good point that you can find nuance and subtlety in the music, even if you've heard it thousands of times before. You know, you can still, or it can provoke, as you were saying, Claire, you, you know, it, it, the provocative elements of it, which can actually provoke years afterwards from when you first heard it. It, all, it often depends on what you bring to listening to the Manix, which brings out new elements to them, which is why I think that, you know, I'd like to think I still develop as a human being. It's probably really limited at this point, but you know, I, I, I'd like to think as I develop and I read and, you know, I read different theory and I, you know, I understand the world in different ways all the time. The Manics are malleable in that sense as well. You know, there are nuances in the Manics music that, you know, I can bring to them with my listening to it and that they bring with what they're performing as well, which gives them a depth which most fans of their stature I don't think don't have or you know and their longevity just adds, adds to that depth over time so it's depth and breadth and um, I think they still are very very relevant if only because there's a lacuna in contemporary music for bands like the Manics you know we, we there aren't many bands out there even at the time you know even in the 90s and 2000s there weren't many bands out there like the Manics they were pigeonholed with a lot of bands, but a lot, most mm. bands weren't doing what they were trying to do, and there are very, there are fewer now. And I think that's that, that's important. They, they still stand for something, and they still produce something. Which even 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 if I'm not 
particularly interested in something like Resistance is Futile, I'll still listen to it. Mm. You know, and, you know, I, I still, you know, I don't listen to most things. So, you know, it, you know, it, it's still there as, you know, the, the, it, you know, there is listening to be done. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Emily? I mean, do they still represent something to you? Yeah, obviously, they've still got meaning. Um, nostalgia is wound up in it, uh, similar to what Leighton said, you know, in the 90s they meant certain things. You know, the Holy Bible will always mean certain things to me, as um, some guy in a tracksuit designed for life means certain things to him in a stadium, you know, back in 1996. So, you know, they, they've got an in, and they've lasted all along and they've had that sort of enduring quality. But uh, they've managed to attract new fans, which is, is somewhat not quite a rarity um, for 90s bands. I mean, it does happen. Radiohead, obviously. Um, but the Manics are still, despite their sales going down, their gigs getting smaller, they, they're still getting a lot of really politically active uh, teens. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that. I love that. That's fantastic. Who are really engaging in the back catalogue and still loving all the current stuff. I mean, for me personally, they—they've sort of—they've been part of my almost my rebirth after my breakdown, and, and they give me um, not so much a, a sort of reason. You know, that sounds ridiculous. I've got plenty of reasons to to live, but they're one of the live shows, particularly are those you know those sort of points I have in the future that I can look to where I know I'm going to get a fantastic show because as a live act, they're brilliant. They're consistently good. Um, I mean, I would argue Radiohead at their height are better, but depends on Tom's mood. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Manics, it's very rare you get a crap gig because James is a professional and he's a showman. So that's also very relevant too. You know, I've seen a few 90s bands trot out the nostalgia. You know, I saw Sleeper last year. And it's not, not not criticise a sleeper or anything, but you know they don't, they don't seem as up to date and relevant as the Manics do. Yeah, I'm biased though because the Manics have kept updating themselves instead of recycling. You know, sleeper is a bad example. They've probably done like ten albums. I don't know about, but I'm just saying that's the impression I got. So yes, they are still very relevant to me and. You know, then James producing this 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 wonderful album of Patrick's brilliant yeah. poetry, and yeah, that reminds me even more that why I got into them, what they stand for. Fab, thank you. So I asked you guys to think about, I guess you've not necessarily your top ten favorite Manix tracks, but you each picked an area. Maybe looking at a marginalised topic or theme. Could have been mental health or religion or disability, gender, class inequality. So, Leighton, would you like to go first? Maybe if you could just announce your topic, your area that you looked at, and why you've chosen the songs? Well, I'm to think, because when you got in touch with me... Um I was thinking about that article I wrote at the time. So I've included the sort of songs which I talked about in the article itself. Judge Yourself, 1985, and Masters Against the Classes.
they were relevant to discussing the influence of Nietzsche on um, both the lyric making process and, you know, Judge Yourself is, you know, the chorus is basically a Nietzsche, um, is, is basically just Nietzsche itself. You get that wonderful line in 1985 about uh, if God is dead, like Nietzsche said. Um, well, we don't really get into the meaning of um, what Nietzsche meant by God is dead. So you have to infer that for yourself, which I like about the Manics when they're doing things like that, because they do leave it up to you if you want to. It's, it's like a little guidebook. If you want to learn more about me, yeah. read here. <laughs> <laughs> against the classes as well i mean it's it's not really a nietzschean song albeit i do like some of the way that song is put together in terms of how nietzsche might think of that battle um of course it's got noam chomsky at the beginning of it as well and uh i think he's got a line from albert camus at the end so it's kind of infused with um philosophical ideas masses against classes the country was founded on the principle that the primary role of government is to protect property from the majority, uh, and so it remains.
And then I'm trying to think where I went after that. Really what I was looking at after that was songs related to issues around class. I think Design for Life, I mean, Adam picked up on it earlier about the irony yeah. of <laughs> um, uh, Design for Life. And you know, I think Design for Life is a powerful statement, not just of class relations, but also, very importantly, it, it's rooted in almost a Blackwood type experience. Mm. You know, and the notion, um, you know, libraries did give us power and work made us free. Those are generalized statements, but they are rooted in a community where you had, like, you know, the Miners Institute and Miners Library and so on, providing facilities for people to lead the working class lifestyle if they so chose to through efforts, you know?
Um, and to go on from there, Royal Correspondent is obviously spit in the face of the Royal Family, which is great. Uh, and Sycophant in, in the British press, which, um, you know, is an important commentary on the class structure of the media. And it's no surprise it's off Know Your Enemy as well. You can see that mm. influence of the overriding sort of political statement in Know Your Enemy that. Freedom of Speech Won't Feed My Children off the same album has similar sort of vibe. Nat West Barkley's Midlands Lloyds is the best song about banks ever written. Yeah, there's one bank in there that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, that really dates me remembering I you know, mid Anthem for a Lost Cause, Thirty Year of War and Golden Platters, I mean from later albums and I think you know, in all of these, um sort of from seven downwards, you have a very sharp reading of the changing dynamics of class in the UK and indeed in Wales in particular.
Certainly in the inflection from 2008 and the uh, global financial crash of 2008 as well, there's some very interesting um, work that they produced there around sort of economics and politics and neoliberalism. desire to be politically aware, economically aware, and acutely aware of how these things inflect everyday life. And so I think those the reason why I chose those is they still have that ongoing sort of commentary in them. Got to evolve. 
a strong top ten. Yeah, yeah. I just realised that I've ballsed this up quite severely, but we'll 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 plough on. Okay. <laughs> would you like to um, go next, or would you like some thinking time to try and? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, like mine was. Like, I think I came back to you and said, like, oh, okay, well, you know, I work in mental health and I've uh, struggled with my own mental health issues. So I'll kind of do songs that are about mental health. But the problem with that is that that is such a personal topic and, like, and everyone responds to those sort of things uh, differently. So what I've actually got is 10 songs that make me feel like it's okay to be sad sometimes, which isn't, I think, is is not really what you, <laughs> not really no, what you no, were looking for. Fine. But um, I also made it slightly harder on myself by not allowing any uh, Richie lyrics in there, I think. Um, so, Emily, you're like this. No surface or feeling. <laughs> is such an upliftingly melancholy song the idea of something being not apparent on the surface of a person but being completely internalized um i think is a very powerful thought and image um and that's just in the title um epicenter from know your enemy
the idea of um of of like searching going deeper and deeper into darkness i'm cribbing from um uh, an interview we did with um with michael sheen and he was talking about going into dark places to find something shiny even though it's potentially harmful i think epicenter has a lot of that that sort of makes me respond to sort of mental health issues my little empire from this is my truth just for that just for the line i'm happy being sad and and that the whole tone of that song is so is so melancholy but also very gentle beautiful so i think that's the only richly written lyric in my in my 10 I've always read that song as being like you have to accept 
your failures and you have to embrace who you are no matter how kind of difficult that is um australia because i think anybody who's had you know any kind of struggle with mental health understands that feeling of just wanting to get as far away from something as possible co-host on the podcast steve pointed out is actually not australia it's new zealand uh if you live in wales um his last painting from know your enemy I feel like I've lost myself to everybody and everything else. Uh, that's a very potent sort of, um, a, a very evocative uh, image. Um, from Lifeblood, I Live to Fall Asleep. Ah, love um, that one. Because it's a beautiful sort of haunting song. Maybe has one of James's best vocal takes. Gives in. I've lived enough to keep. 
When did you become another distant friend? Everyone who loved you stayed waiting till the end. When did you become another distant friend? Everyone who loved you stayed waiting till the end. Oh, when did you decide that sleep could save your life? Is one of their one of their best depictions of depression. That idea of living to fall asleep and wanting to be in a place where you don't even dream. It's just sort of this state of nothingness. This sullen Welsh heart from uh, from Rewind the film. I don't want my children to grow up like me. It's too so destroying. It's a mocking I don't want my children to grow up like me. It's too so destroying. It's a mocking disease. A wasting disease. Some days I wake up with love still alive. I wanna go to sleep, but I cannot close my eyes. I cannot close my eyes I can't fight this war anymore Time to surrender, time to move on So line up the firing squads Kiss goodbye to what you want Go with the flow, go home You can't keep on struggling when you're alone when you're alone This sullen Welsh heart It won't leave, it won't give up The hating half of me Has won the battle easily There's a couple of lines on that song that I think are some of the best that, that Nicky's ever written. Um, the act of creation saves us from despair, I think is really beautiful, says a lot about depression and kind of, you know, some of the ways you can battle yourself out of it. And also, I don't want my children to grow up like me um, is another very evocative line. Um, and then weirdly, like, I don't really rate Resistance is Futile all that highly on my like rankings of manic songs but I've got two from it which is people give in people get tired 
I think that's a great sort of like defiant anthem about not giving in to giving in. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> a, a, a an odd sentence. Um, and hold me like a heaven. A walk between the dividing lines. A dance around the exit signs. I hit the world more than I hit myself. I love that song and it's got some some lyrics that I think like touched me personally I like I, I walk between the dividing lines I dance around the exit signs and I hate the world more than I hate myself that is such that's such a manix uh, melancholic sort of line so I've I've sort of it's a bit of a cop out because I can't tell you that those songs are definitely about mental health and depression but like I said like stuff like that hits people in very different ways and those are 10 songs that hit me in that sort of specific way. Yeah, it's interesting. I probably feel similar to you in that it's not that I don't rate Distance is Futile. It's just not up there for me as one of my faves. However, when I was going through it the other day, like the first five or six tracks were great. You know, really brilliant. And I think you said on your podcast last season that Manics do tend to front load their albums. And there's a few there's a few bangers at the end as well. And again, there's very few I dislike. In fact, I don't think there's any that I actively dislike. I just don't respond as strongly to that album. Do you, do you, do you know what it is for me? 
I, I think it's that they're not making any sort of strong, cohesive statement on Resistance is Futile for me. It's a collection of decent songs. Um, and some very good songs. Like, I love International Blue and Hold Me Like a Heaven. Um, but there's no, it doesn't feel like one of their most cohesive pieces of work, I suppose. Okay, so last but not least then, Emily. When we last spoke about this, you had six songs in mind, I think. Did, <laughs> did you manage to sort out your last four? And do you want to just share with us what area you were looking at, what stance you were coming from? I thought, well, because I'm autistic and I miss things and I always assume everything's structured, I thought I got disability and uh, LGBTQ Mm -hmm. plus to look at. So I sort of did it approaching that. Mm -hmm. But there's not really an... I've not really looked at LGBT much. I mean, more with T, with uh, Born a Girl. A lot of listeners will, well, know of, at least, um, just a, a beautiful song. Um, I mean, it has sort of split Manix fans in a way. I mean, most cis people seem to love it, mm. but some and some trans people just think it's written for them and find it very beautiful. These are all comments I've either got on my forum or um, on my YouTube videos. Uh, but there are some trans people who find it very very difficult to listen to and there's some who find it almost hypocritical because Nikki's not actually trans I mean I suppose he's more genderqueer but he hasn't labelled himself so I'm not one to label him 
but yeah, he, he was basically um, just talking about how he wanted to be a girl, born a girl. It was just very pretty. Yeah, um, I, I love that song. And I think as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, however many letters we've got added on now, I'm not sure. On there. <laughs> um, yeah, I sort of did that. There's not really a song that tackles LGBT issues as such, but I guess Born a Girl is the closest. But then I think, as Leighton said earlier, there there are a lot of songs that are inclusive in their a in in their nature that speak to the many, regardless of whether you identify as gay or trans. What I am trying to get from some of my musician friends that are trans is their viewpoints. Because on the Forever Delayed forums and the various other forums I've I've been on, there's a lot of love and a lot of positive points for Born a Girl, but a lot of hate as well. And a few comments that sort of said that Nikki is sort of, I don't know, trying to say that being a woman is easy or easier. (laughs) I don't know that we have it easier. That was an initial criticism that he yeah. received very early on, um, and his response was that he wasn't. Um, I think I've actually written it down. Oh. Uh, I'm not saying I want a sex change, sex change or anything. Just excitement and something else. Mm. Um, this is paraphrasing. Um, in general, men are crap and women are good. Yeah. I just like ones like one sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, he, he also acknowledged that you know not everything's rosy and peachy as a woman, and that's not what he meant. And James has also defended. Yeah. Him on this, um, with, you know, James the Masculine singing mm. the very high pitched, lovely song about dressing as a lady. But I can totally see where, you know, how it could be problematic. Yeah. And of course, James, uh, I don't think he's sung it live very many times at all. Although I did catch the, uh, Leighton, I don't know if you caught the Cardiff Castle gig, the anniversary tour. No, actually. Was it 2019 where they played? No, I don't, yeah. yeah. It was the anniversary of, you know, Legacy Tour of um, <laughs> the ones you don't like, Adam. But they played This Is My Truth from Start to Finish. Um, yeah. Amazing. Eight dates of it. So oh, yeah. um, I've seen it eight times. Got yeah. Girl. <laughs> but, yeah, it was very lovely live, very delicate. They handled mm. it really well. Just him and um, Nick Naismith. I mean, the other stuff I looked at was, was um, well, mostly disability stuff because that's mm-hmm. my field if i had a field yeah. that's what my education's in yeah um my education so yeah the list was black dog there's a black dog on my shoulder Licking my neck and saying she's my friend Solitude, the one thing that I really miss Yes, my life is a compromise There's a black dog on my shoulder again I'm playing with this, but it's gone to my head Like Alito's way, there are no
that looks at depression so openly and so in such a raw way and there's there's a massive reaction i found when i was on the tour as i mentioned the reaction to it every night there was always someone either crying or dancing or losing themselves because it's so i mean i find it almost a bit too blatant it's it's mm. so you know nikki's written it so openly um but yeah that's a good one la tristessa It's about ageing, descent into poverty and the almost sort of throwing away of elderly people. Spent some time working in care homes recently and um, you sort of see it where no one, no one visits and people are sort of left to their, their own devices. And I felt like that was exploring that part of it a little bit and the sort of invisibility almost of elderly people especially mm. when, when they become disabled you know wheeled out once a year send us our souvenir yeah i love that line yeah it's fantastic to make notes my brain's not very good at remembering things um mostly i didn't really then go into songs i just sort of went on journal for plague lovers um because for <laughs> me that's richie wise that's yeah some of his best stuff mental health wise and disability wise um it's you know a very theological album as well of course but it's just a lot of mental health uh, vulnerability disability um it, it does sort of there's a lot of songs written from the point of view as the vulnerable adult or as with little baby nothing trying to put himself into that person it does sort of sometimes develop into Disability is tragedy trope, but mm-hmm. um, on, on the whole, he does pretty well, especially as if you look at how disability was sort of conveyed in the media in the, you know, the sort of early to early 90s when he was writing this. A lot of it's very innovative, particularly um, my favourite song on there is uh, the SEC, Virginia State Epileptic mm-hmm. Colony. i 
really. He, he seems to, who knows with Richie, but he seems to literally talk about his time when he was um, on on a ward for people with mental health problems. And um, it, it, also, it reminded me very much of when my mother was uh, sectioned. Um, but it also, and, and the fact that there was always some kind of art therapy or something going on, you know, cleaning, cooking, flower arranging. Yeah. But it also very much has connotations for the learning disability field. So today the doctors allow the illusion of choice. You don't only get that in a mental health setting, you also get in a learning disability setting, uh, in which I've worked in where it's, you've got your choice. We're now giving people with learning disabilities a choice to do things. But actually, if you look at that choice, you can choose to do art or you can choose to do music. You can't choose to, say, not get up in the morning. So yeah. it's all a lack of autom- autonomy. And which he sort of said dissolves the kind of liberation. So um, I'm not sure if he was thinking about LD in that, but it made me think about it. Also got Bader in a bath of bleach. of someone incredibly vulnerable, um, possibly in a destructive relationship, which is vastly impacting on their mental health. There's a dependency to vulnerability and a sort of need to be loved, which was something Richie's, you know, has come up a few times, quite well, quite a few times. His, his want of love, but also not quite sure how to process or accept that love. I totally get that. And sort of rejected... And it's sort of back to La Tristessa with the, with brush her hair, no one else will. You know, that, that reminds me of the care homes that, if, you know, some of the carers didn't brush someone's hair. It, it just wouldn't happen. Mm. Again, the almost visibility. Um, I used to, I used to work within the field of reminiscence theatre. So I would take a reminiscence theatrical show into nursing homes and residential homes in my early 20s first job first job out of drama school you know I might be in a looking at an era like the 40s or the 50s or the 60s and then we'd throw loads of things in to act as a memory trigger like objects songs dance fads and that sort of thing and one of the most shocking things to me is whenever we went into private run homes so things like booper the care there was significantly worse than in your sort of state-run local nhs nursing homes and the one thing that struck me was well one of the care staff was moving a, a woman from her room into the dining room where we were doing the show 
uh, and kind of uh, the woman was distressed, didn't want to watch, so she let the chair go, and this chair carried on rolling like towards the wall, and the woman ended up facing this wall, you know, right really close to the wall on her own, and I kind of got the carer's attention and said, you know, she come, needs to come away from the wall and come and watch the show. And she said, oh, no, it's fine. She just dismissed it. She's fine. She, she, she won't know what's going on anyway. I was just so shocked. Wow. That is <laughs> yeah, not, no, that, that is not very person It happens. It really does happen. Um, thankfully, not in my current care home as mm. much. I eat too much to die. And not enough to stay alive. I'm sitting in the waiting. They sort of, I almost felt like Richie was writing about the invisibility of these people, perhaps from his point of view of being in a mental health ward. But yeah. And is that your your list? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, there is so much good material on Journal for Plague Lovers. You could do a whole podcast on that, a podcast series on that. I do have a really special place for that album i know a lot of people think of it as holy bible part two i sort of do and don't i guess i do in that it's the slight return of richie if you like and that the tone is bleak and quite dark although i say bleak and dark but there is some comedy in it with um things like me and stephen hawking
But if we go down the road of talking about this, I think we'll be talking for another three hours. So, um, yeah, I think I'll just wrap things up now. Thank you all for agreeing to come on the podcast. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting really me nice on. to chat about music and chat about a band that clearly mean a lot to all of us. And I think that sort of answers the question, are they still relevant? Because, yeah, because to us they are, because we're still talking about it. And I guess to the fans that, you know, that are on the forums and that do listen to your podcast and that are discussing these issues on Twitter, so... The tens of people that are listening to our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) A handful of people. (laughs) So... Well, just final things to say then. Is there anything that you you guys would like to plug or point listeners in the direction of? Either work that you're doing, upcoming episodes, Adam, or Leighton, any articles being published? Doesn't have to be Mannix related if it's just something you want to... No, no, no. All my articles are boring, dry, <laughs> academic rubbish about virtual reality and stuff like that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't inflict it on the white. Sounds like our podcast. So, if, <laughs> so if um, if people did want to check out that, thus sang. Yeah, I, I've, I've just um, actually popped it in the Zoom group chat okay. for all you guys. Another copy of it, so it's there as a PDF. You know, if anyone's um, welcome to get in touch with me. Uh, probably Twitter's the easiest way. I'm at Leighton Evans and. People can just send me a tweet and I'm happy to send them out a copy of it. Yeah, it's probably, it's, you probably never get it off the magazine publisher anymore because it's got to be out of print by now, right? <laughs> probably want to send you a hundred um, issues or a CD or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to um, share that. And um, if anyone's, yeah, if anyone wants to chat about it with me on Twitter, they're welcome to, um, you know, like most people on Twitter do, abuse me remorsely <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. I've just followed you for that very reason. Outstanding. Due course. Um, I I just wanted to plug uh, my group on Facebook. I guess um, if you're into James Dean Bradfield, my special interest is splashed all over a group called Picturesque James Dean Bradfield Adoration, which is great. I I just uh, I just start, I just joined the group today, so yeah, that's hey. worth, worth checking out. It's, yeah, it's not just. Middle-aged women perving on James. I know that seems like <laughs> the general thing. Some of it is that, though, isn't it, Emily? Yes, some of it is that. <laughs> yes, very, very much. But, you know, there are things that happen that aren't. Um, you know, and I also do, um, when they, when the lads tour again, I do a lot of Facebook Live videos. And because I'm front row, they're good quality. Um, I also share all my videos uh, from YouTube. I've got an extensive YouTube channel. Loads of manic stuff on there, particularly the aforementioned beautiful versions of uh, Born a Girl from the last tour. That's Emily M J Hyatt. They're so good as well. There's that. It's, it's on. It's on your channel. The one where um, where he gets that girl up to sing "Little Baby Nothing." Oh, like, Ali! Like, yeah, that's solo. fantastic. Yeah, that's a great set. That's, yeah, highly recommended. Like, he becomes like a wedding singer for about a third of it and does like loads of covers and stuff. That's a cool set. Um, if you just 
search for what is music podcast or uh you can find us on twitter or instagram any of those places i think we're at what is music pod uh, and we're going through the discography of muse um we've just done absolution but i do recommend that manix fans go back and check out uh season one because it was fun we did that whole discography including best ofs and including music videos and b-sides and stuff um and we had some great guests on we had like greg haver and dave erringer and the anchoress and simon price and michael sheen uh and loads of cool people talking about the manics uh what they mean to them and working with them and stuff so uh yes uh, i would say worth checking out as a manics fan myself well cheers thank you for for your time and for for your input and i will let you know when we're ready to launch and adam i look forward to the next episode uh yeah thank you uh, don't look forward too much i'm always you don't 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 anticipate it too much um you know the next one could always be the one that uh alienates everybody well you never know with muse <laughs> <laughs> only if you're doing it properly yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay well cheers guys take care then. thank you very much bye-bye bye, bye. bye. join us next time when i interview stephen lee nash author of Riffs and Meaning and Modern Music Masters. I think sort of behind the kind of nihilistic uh, manifesto of like destroy rock and roll was always the long-term manifesto of just bringing some intelligence to, uh, to music. Stop the hacks. Stop the attacks. Stop the attacks and start taking your IT career to the next level. The Masters in Cybersecurity from Stevenson University Online can keep you one step ahead of the criminals and one step ahead of career advancement. Complete your online degree in as little as 18 months with convenient and affordable classes. Stevenson University Online, your partner for professional success. Visit stevenson.edu slash cyberwar.